Live from a tidal wave of beer, this is the award-winning Stamp Show here today, episode number 235, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Albert. And this is Lloyd. Pat's history segment. This day in history, the London Beer Flood. The London Beer Flood was an accident at the Mew and Company's Horse Shiso Brewery. <laughs> wow. In London on October 17th, 1814. Actually, if we're going to do that, we should do it British. It's the 17th October, 1814. There you go. Yes. It took place when one of the 22-foot-tall wooden vats of fermenting porter burst. The pressure destroyed another vessel, and between 128,000 and 323,000 gallons of beer were released. That's a big discrepancy. That should that the margin of error there should be a little closer. I think. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing when I saw it, but I wonder if they count like foam or something like that. Gallons of foam. Gallons of foam, maybe. The resulting wave of porter swept into the St. Giles Rookery, and while this sounds like a fantastic drinker's paradise, eight people were killed. The brewery was nearly bankrupted by the event. It avoided collapse after a rebate from the taxes the brewery paid on the lost beer. The brewing industry gradually stopped using large wooden vats after the accident, and Mew and Company went out of business in 1961. Unfortunately, no postage stamps commemorate the event, so instead we will be discussing... Oh, I should say there no postage stamps were issued in this accident. Yeah. No postage stamps were harmed in this accident. Well, we don't know that. Or people were using the beer to stick stamps. Uh, this is before stamps were invented. I was going to say, no stamps existed before yeah, 1840. Uh, except oh, yeah, for 18, revenue stamps. 1814. Roland, Roland Hill would be ashamed. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking maybe you're confusing it with the Great Molasses Flood from Boston in 1919. Oh, yeah, that's that's exactly what it yeah, was. When 2,300,000 U.S. gallons of molasses burst out in the and in the ensuing flood, 21 were killed and 150 were injured. Wow, that's worse than the beer flood. Well, actually, Lloyd was closer. On this day in 1912, Bulgaria, Greece, and Serbia declared war on the Ottoman Empire joining Montenegro in the First Balkan War. Commenting on war, Field Marshal and then-President Paul von Hindenburg said, it will be caused by some damn foolish thing in the Balkans. The First Balkan War lasted eight months from October 1912 to May 1913 and comprised actions of the Balkan League, which included Superman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman... Cash, uh, I think you have that wrong. It's uh, the Justice League. Well, that was a googly wicked duck and dive. Sorry, what? Constantine was hit by an accent exaggerated spell while fighting a warlock last week. He responded to my distress signal. John, I'm guessing you brought us to your house of mystery. Spot on. Best using the old loaf, mutton jugs. He said yes. You're not the only ones. Well, My favorite don't, don't, don't forget, uh, if you're going to talk about Hindenburg, you got to talk about Ludendorff, too. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, my favorite Bismarck story is that he was once asked, uh, what would happen, what would he do if the uh, British, using their magnificent navy, <laughs> landed their army on the shores of Germany? And he said he'd call the cops. 
Well, the Balkan League included the kingdoms of Bulgaria, Serbia, Greece, and Montenegro, and they went to war with the Ottoman Empire. The combined armies of the Balkan states overcame the weaker and inept Ottoman armies and achieved a very quick victory. The war was a disaster for the Ottoman Empire, who lost 83% of their territories in Europe. That's about half, right? Sure. Well, based on the beer flood, that's somewhere between half and (laughs) seven-eighths. So, again, we're in the, you know, realm of uh, error there. Plus or minus. Move a decimal point here or there. As a result of the war, the Balkan League captured and partitioned almost all the European territories of the Ottoman Empire, which led to some disgruntled folks who needed to get gruntled because, as Hindenburg said, it will be caused by some damn foolish thing in the Balkans. We need to discuss this on a future podcast. Well, this is the cause of uh, World War One. I. I mean, if this hadn't happened, World War One hadn't wouldn't have happened. So World War One, as I was talking with Albert about, is a long um, chain of events that goes all the way back to the Moroccan crisis in 1905. That if just any, if one of about 20 people had stood up at any time and just said, uh, no, let's not go to war, World War One would have never occurred. So it's kind of like how far back in history you can go before the actual start of the Civil War in the United States to look back at events and go, what caused it? Well, let's go back a few years. Yeah. Yeah, but it had been going on a lot of things in the Balkans. In 1908, there was a war between Italy and the Ottoman Empire in Libya. And five years before that, uh, basically the same people that uh, were responsible for Archduke's assassination also absolutely slaughtered the uh, king of of Serbia and butchered his wife. So, I mean, it was falling apart. So would World War I have happened? It would have happened differently, possibly. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing. You brought up the uh, war between Italy and the Ottoman Empire. Mm Mm-hmm. That war showed that the Ottomans were terribly undergunned, uh, horribly trained, stuff like that. So that was like all the Greeks and the Bulgarians and everybody said, wow, if the Turks are this inept, why aren't we attacking them? And it was because of the war there that this war occurred. I mean, it really is a whole bunch of dominoes. Mm Mm-hmm. Including a second Balkan War. Yes. Well, since we call this the first Balkan War, uh, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, right? Yeah, but it happened before World War One, and not like, say, 1938. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Well, the Treaty of London, after they cleaned up all the beer, ended the first Balkan War on May 30th, 1913. Oh, sorry, we did it wrong again. 30 May, 1913. <laughs> we have to be British if we're doing British dates. All Ottoman territory west of the European border of Constantinople was ceded to the Balkan League, and the land went to whoever occupied the territory at the time of the armistice. The treaty also declared Albania to be an independent state, which pissed off Greece and Serbia, but they reluctantly withdrew their troops. Having unresolved disputes with Serbia and Greece over the division of Macedonia, Bulgaria was also pissed off, but they wanted to fight it out, so they began transferring forces from eastern Thrace to the disputed regions. Yeah, everybody should pay attention to all the 
areas because it, this has direct relationship to the stamps that were issued. Because they were not good neighbors, Greece and Serbia settled their mutual differences and signed a military alliance against Bulgaria, and this is before the ink is dry on the beer-stained Treaty of London. Then, Greece and Serbia, who were still pissed at each other, signed a treaty of mutual friendship and protection. Oh, they must not have been that pissed then. Or is that pissed like drunk? Ah, from, from the, the beer. beer. Mm. Yeah. Because they were more afraid of Bulgaria than each other. And since we have been referring to this as the first Balkan War, not the Balkan War, you probably figured out that there wouldn't be just one. Thus, the scene for the Second Balkan War, which was set, and in 2004, the TV show Friends went into production. Coincidence? What did I just read? <laughs> I don't know who put that in there. Anyway, so, so the uh, area that is in northern Greece right now, if you look at Greece, it's got sort of a panhandle. That was all the Ottoman Empire. And... All of that is where all these, in addition to a bunch of uh, Turkish islands, is where all these great overprints occur uh, for these issues. And you have Bulgarian stamps overprinted in Thrace. You have Greek occupation stamps for Turkey. And I just wanted to talk about one real quick, the uh, Turkish overprinted stamps with the, uh, with the first and second issues of Albania. Uh, it's a two-headed eagle. There are a whole lot of uh, fakes on these. Um, they should all get expertized. But a, go to our uh, website and you will see a summary of how to tell the first issue of Albania stamps. Speaking of overprints, the U.S. never had a quick issue produced for a new territory, did they? Oh, yes, they did. Yeah. When, uh, uh, when Panama was created by uh, revolting against Colombia, um, they, took, uh, they took the stamps. They made a deal with the United States to lease a certain area for the canal zone. And what uh, the United States did is they bought uh, Panamanian stamps, which were basically Colombian stamps overprinted. And then they overprinted it with, rubber, with a, uh, a rubber stamp that said uh, in purple ink that said canal zone. And they were good for about uh, three quarters of a year. And they are also among the more frequently counterfeited of American overprinted stamps. Yeah, because they were anything that seems to be cheaply made can be cheaply made as a fake. And there are contemporary counterfeits from 1904. So I remember a British dealer named Derek Bolton showing me everything that was bought by his grandfather in 1904, and I said, they're all bad. And he said, it's impossible. And I said, nope, because we, we know the history of the stamps. You mean as soon as the stamps were As soon made, as the stamps were made, they were faked. They were faked. Wow. Because, they, because the raw material existed and didn't cost anything, basically. Wow, that's interesting. So even if you were there, you might get, well, not he wasn't there, obviously, but... Immediate fakes of an issue. Yes. No. What no, about the other? Not, a, not un, I mean, not overprints, but not unlike some of the counterfeits we're seeing of just U.S. stamps today. Well, for instance, in other in other uh, U.S. possessions, um, there were there were three or four provisionals that were made by the local governments 
like uh, like the uh, Cuomo sheet or the uh, Ponce provisional. Yeah, uh, you ha- that's in Puerto Rico, but also in Cuba you have the Puerto Principes, which are which we know were counterfeited, and we actually know who did it at the time. <laughs> there was a guy. There was a guy named Paris there who uh, was supplying all the dealers, and when he could no longer buy the stamps legally, he started to make his own counterfeits. <laughs> so his supply ran out, so he just made more. Yes. <laughs> so that's why they're. That's one of the reasons why they're not highly collected because there's no real. Um, there's no reference in the English language. There's a very good one that was produced in Cuba by the Cuban uh, Postal History Museum in Havana, but uh, it needs to be translated into English. Hmm. So what other... Uh, there were other overprinted stamps, obviously, in the United States. Well, we, we because of uh, post office robberies in 1928 or 29, they overprinted the stamps uh, in Kansas and Nebraska. And unfortunately, there are are contemporary counterfeits of them. Yeah. Oh, you mean issued when they were basically still in use? Yeah. Wow. And then uh, and then there are a number of issues such as the Molly Pitcher or the Hawaii Stamp. Um, and then uh, all the other U.S. possessions, uh, they actually ordered the stamps from uh, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, and they usually got, they usually got sent out within three or four months. Um, Guam certainly had them. Cuba, Puerto Rico, they took U.S. US stamps and just overprinted them with the name of the territory that they were going to be good in. And uh, oh, we, we were talking about these and about uh, disturbed gums, disturbed gum on these. Why don't you go over that real quick? Because I thought that was interesting. Well, the the problem is is that all these places, including the Philippines, are in very tropical environments, and they were when they sent out the stamps, they sent them out. All they were separated with was little wax paper interleaving. So a lot of times, the gum on the stamps attached to the interleaving. So there's such a thing as wax gum or disturbed gum. There are there are there are a number of issues where there's no such thing as a stamp that has full original gum as it came out of the post office simply because of the difficulties in transit from getting a stamp from from Washington from the BEP all the way to Guam or to Manila in the Philippines. And so uh, um, that's why um, that's why the catalog mentions that, uh, especially in Canal Zone, a lot of these stamps, the gum is uh, is is disturbed, or gone, or removed. Yeah. Actually, in most cases, is actually there. It's just dried up. Oh. So there's a term that uh, that I prefer to use, which is called tropicalized gum. That's really a, a good description of it, because if you actually take if you actually lick the stamp, it'll actually attach to an envelope. It's still there. It's just that the top surface of the gum is gone. No. Does that apply to uh, Shanghai overprints as well? Shanghai overprints are different. Shanghai overprints were actually um, sheets of American stamps that were alre- already printed. The first, uh, the first uh, printing of the Shanghai overprints took place at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, and they, the first day of issue is July 1, 1919. Um, the big problem with those stamps is that since the sheets were already printed, when they were overprinted, sometimes the gum gets disturbed. There's a lot of the first issue that you turn them over, and you can actually see the interleaving of the uh, the sheet interleaving has disturbed the gum. Now there was a second. There was a second over. There was a second uh, uh, um, the, uh, printing of the of the uh, Shanghai overprints in 1922, but those were also available in Washington. So that's why that's why they mostly the, the stamps that have the really good gum are from the second printing, and then you can actually tell because the colors are different. 
for instance, and it's only recognized in two places in the catalog. There's uh, uh, on the 16 over 8 cent, which is the K8 and K8A. The um, the early the earlier printing is uh, is actually olive green, and the later printing is olive beaster. And then um, on the K11 and K11A, the uh, the first the first printing is actually um, this carmine this carmine lake color, and then the second is this brown carmine. And that's totally reversed from the Scott listings. So a lot of times people mess up and they list, they list uh, K11As as K11s and vice versa. They did that in the Rumsey sale this weekend. No. Well, I'm curious about one because I don't know if anyone here knows a lot about it, but I know that one of them highly counterfeited was the, the RF overprints on the aerials. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Well, those are those are actually sort of controls more than anything else. That was just to recognize that the that the uh, the mail actually was from these um, French warships that were in American harbors. Um, that was what the RFs were originally designed for. Um, it's a very there's some that are very philatelic and some that are that are very um, that are very just they, they were used for such a short time. And it's an area that still, um, I've had at least two that have become new Scott listings in the last 10 years just because uh, um, I ended up buying them when they first came out in the auctions and then submitting them. And then when they got authenticated, getting getting them in the catalog. These are the RF overprints right. on a used state. On a, on a, on a, on a C25. Because they, uh, the Scott catalog even says, you know, you cannot expertize them if they are not. Absolutely. It must, it must yeah. be on a letter. Yeah, because it's just too easy to make. And then the letter has to also identify. Usually, the letters actually identify the name of the worship on the back. Oh, that I didn't know. Yeah. Oh. How about uh, internal revenue overprints? Anything interesting about those? Because they had the 1898 issue, and they have the uh, large IR, and then uh, the one center also has the let's call it a single line IR. Uh, they they show up a lot. The plate blocks actually are fairly common, much more common than the, in the eighteen ninety eight issue itself. Uh, anything about those that you know of? Well, there's some IR issues that are that have just been listed in the catalog over the last ten or fifteen years because they're very short issues and the documentation people um, people have not. Uh, uh, a lot of the research has, has existed maybe from the 60s or 50s, but a lot of them, it took it took all the way until the early 2000s before they actually got a Scott listing number. Um, I forget the name of the doctor who did it. Kilmer. Uh, Kilmer, yes, yeah. yes. And, uh, um, and there are a number of other ones that are still being researched. And may get in the catalog. So there's oh. and there and some of the some of the rarest of those overprints, um, um, they are they have very high catalog values. And when they're, but unfortunately most of them are not sound. But when a sound one comes up, it brings uh, sometimes telephone book numbers, <laughs> twenty or thirty thousand dollars for one item. Yeah, well, that's be for those who don't remember us saying this all the time. Uh, unfortunately, Mark isn't here. But uh, these were all attached to boxes and bottles and things that were actually used. So if you are applying it to a flap of a box, then all of those stamps are going to be damaged one way or another unless somebody literally, well, I guess you could have opened it from the other end. There are, there are in some of these revenue cases, uh, especially in the uh, 
private proprietary stuff, the matching medicines. There are collectors who've actually collected them on the bottles or on the packaging, and then um, our company purchased a very, very fine collection back in the, in the middle 80s that Bob Siegel sold us, and everything was on a bottle or a box and everything, and had been actually collected contemporarily. Yep. That was the most fantastic collection I ever saw. Well, one of the rarest items I ever got, and I think I said this a week or two ago, was uh, Dr. Jane and Sons, and I had a one of four known, but it wasn't the entire stamp. It was only the uh, left one-third of it that was over the flap. So what was on top of the flap fell off, and what was on the side of the flap was still on the box, and I had the box. So I had one-third of an incredibly rare stamp, but if I had taken it off the box, then it would have been absolutely valueless. But yeah, how about uh, the other revenues? Uh, and I'm just picking your mind because you have, you know, decades and decades of research on this stuff. How about like the stock transfers and the silver tax and those sort of overprints? Anything interesting? Well, they're, they're rarest when they're found on the documents still. They do come up from time to time. Um, I have never seen a silver tax stamp on a document. I have. I saw it and I saw it. Well, there's a lot of things that the, there's a lot of things at the uh, National Museum, the one in the Smithsonian oh. that um, that would open your eyes, um, and then there's a lot of things that are, well, I mean, I'm uh, the the thing that I would be fascinated in is uh, some of these uh, um, some of these marijuana stamp overprints. Uh, I oh. bought I bought uh, I bought three from a local dealer that that had gotten bad certificates from here and I bought them strictly for reference I just said I want to take them back east and compare them to what's genuine um, I'm just I didn't pay a big price for them but I just I thought it was a it was a it's a fascinating subject and with many states now having uh, having legalized the sale of marijuana I just I just want to know more about the history before because I think it will become a very popular area of stamp collecting frankly oh I totally agree with you I mean it's not just a stamp collecting. It's a collection of politics. Right. It's a cultural artifact. Yeah. In, because uh, the reason they put out the stamps was so they can say, oh, you have marijuana. Where's your tax stamp? And they go, well, I don't have one. And you go, yeah, that's because we don't issue them. We're going to throw you in jail. So very interesting sort of catch-22. And that's why they were thrown. Uh, the law was thrown out was it was a catch-22. You had to admit you were guilty in order to pay your taxes to be innocent. So fun stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, any other overprints or anything you have come across that was cool? Well, I, what I like about overprints is it, 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 it's, uh, it's a change in history. It's taking a stamp that, that existed for another reason, usually some form of a postage stamp, or it could be a basic revenue stamp, and then putting an overprint to apply to a specific a specific use. Um, I had, I've had uh, a lot of friends who were specialized in revenues, and they um, they tick, they picked one area. For instance, the late dealer Tom Priester out of uh, Davenport, Iowa. He wrote the he wrote the uh, book on beer stamps, and it was just um, he had an opportunity as a young man to buy a bunch of beer stamps, and he decided he'd do all the research and write it. So, so that's my feeling on uh, that's my feeling on overprints and. Overprints also require a certain amount of expertise because you have to look at how the overprints made, and you actually have to know how the ink, um, how how the letters are actually formed, 
and then uh, a lot of times there's spacing varieties and things like that and that's all um, I think over Herbert Block once told me that overprints were the toughest stamps to expertise period in worldwide philately oh, yeah. and I I uh, and I got a very good lesson from him many, many years ago, and I've specialized in the American overprints for years. Well, my favorite is the uh, Hawaii overprint uh, from 1928, the two cent and the five cent. Mm -hmm. And the overprint says, Hawaii, 1778 to 1928. And my, I always loved it. Nothing happened in Hawaii in 1778. So they're commemorating literally a hundred what 250 years of something but <laughs> i mean even the post office when they put about uh, had some weird story of what happened in 1778 uh have you heard that story or anything no it's, it's supposed to be 150 years of the anniversary of the, of the landing of captain cook that's the theoretical reason why they were overprinted. Yeah, except that they're off by 20 years. Well, the details, <laughs> details, details. But it's, uh, um, it, it, it was just fun. Yeah. And the collectors, the collectors love the stamps. I mean, there were many, many, there were many, many uh, philatelic covers that were done. First day covers, event covers, and things like that. Actually, it's hard to find that stamp used to, used to uncommon foreign destinations on commercial mail. Oh, yeah, or get like a a strip of five for Amiel or something like that. Right. I mean, it's yeah. uh, it's just like uh, it's just like the Kansas Nebraska overprints. If you uh, other than if it's really used in Kansas Nebraska in that short period of time and it's used to a strange place like overseas, those covers have brought really big money when those they've come up for auction. Well, my favorite is, uh, and you usually saw, see this on the uh, ten cent Kansas. They have a uh, pre-cancel, and it's Halifax, Kansas. And the Kansas on the pre-cancel pretty close matches the other Kansas that was put on it. So it, it says Halifax, Kansas, Kansas. Very, very interesting little cancel, or, uh, a stamp with an interesting pre-cancel on it. I pick up those whenever I see them. I, I just have a, a affinity to them. Well, I mean, I can talk about overprints for hours and hours and hours, <laughs> but I don't want to. I don't want to bore the audience. I, um, the one other, the one other, the one issue in Shanghai overprints that people have to be careful with is the 1922 local overprints that were actually printed locally by the Oriental Press. Those are Scott numbers K17 and K18. Those actually have been counterfeited more, and they actually have a different look. Um, and because the catalog value has finally gone up so that each stamp catalog is basically over $100, we have seen a number of counterfeits in the last 25 years. Have you seen many, Tom? I have not. Yeah. It takes a while for stuff to get to the expertizing companies because uh, another problem is, you know, the stamp costs 20 to $30 to expertize, so who's going to pay that for a $100 stamp? Well, that's why I feel that... Uh, People have to watch out for it. Well, we have an issue. We have an issue with. Uh, there's a number of stamps that are frequently counterfeited that don't catalog enough. Think of all the cheap, rel the relatively inexpensive flat press coils. Absolutely. Which I mean, Absolutely. I can tell you about. Uh, 
fake coil rolls walking into the New York show being sold by, I'm not going to name the dealers, but some of the old timers remember them, where they would walk in with fake 442, 444, 412s, 413s. Yep. And they were whole rolls because they, because the imperfect coils existed and all they did was just... Um, they ran into little machine guns. Ran, one, one guy said, oh, I do it when I watch television. Yeah. <laughs> I well, said, that's one of the things that... Uh, it is... It takes a little bit of explaining, but a lot of people will go, why would they counterfeit a $15 stamp? Or, a, or excuse me, why would they reperforate a $15 stamp? When it costs 50 cents for the raw material, and the SA more? Yeah, exactly. And reperforating is not a difficult feat. It's actually a fairly easy feat. So, I mean, it's difficult if you want to get it right. But if you just want to bang something out... It's relatively inexpensive, so just because you have a cheap stamp does not mean that it's reperforated. Well, shall we put this one to bed? I think we should. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, episode number 235. This was Tom. This was Cash. This was Albert. And Lloyd. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.